Hi, I'm George Tekmanchov here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson and our president, Greg El Presidente Easton. And we've got another Easton podcast for you today, and we're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff. How many people were waiting for you to say Donald Trump when you said our president? None. I not think there's people going, no way they not, got the president. Wow. Not one person was, not one. I mean, we are a pretty top-level archery podcast, but we Listen, don't have that poll. This man's time is valuable and yeah, precious. We barely had poll to get you know, our company owner out here. Yeah, well, his time is valuable and precious, and therefore, let's just jump into this. Doctors across France are now prescribing physical activity to patients. Archery is one of the things they prescribe. What do you think of that? I think that's cool. I think that's great. We got to yeah. figure out how to do that more of that here in the U.S. Yeah. Get more people out there recreationally archery shooting. Yeah. So archery, it says here, archery is now available for doctors across France to prescribe as a health activity. And the French Federation is now running courses for coaches and accredited practitioners so that doctors can write a prescription. And these people can dispense archery for well-being i'm telling you i, I see think, a career for steve here yeah. once the shooting kind of goes downhill he can become a yeah, archer, archery yeah. practitioner when yeah i can't hold still yeah i'm essentially a doctor drug-free therapy right <laughs> literally i so. mean when i well never mind i won't say that but. Uh-huh. <laughs> i'm telling you there's there's something to this and i think that could be very cool i i expect you know france is the leader <laughs> as far as the participation in our sport so why the heck not? When I think of athletes that are in peak physical health, I think about archery. Especially compound archery. <laughs> the fatter I get, the better I get. Uh-huh. I think well, that's you a, wouldn't be the first. True. You wouldn't be the first and you yeah. won't be the last. I've, uh, I've lost a couple of pounds so I can no longer shoot. That's always been my excuse. Why yeah. don't I shoot more? Because you're not fat enough. You haven't yeah. put on Two. enough weight. You just blow around in the wind too easily. Yeah, that's it. You don't have the, the stability to deal with it. Hey, we've got an actual legitimate reason for having Greg here. Oh, yeah. Greg was at the World Championship. That's a change for me to have a reason to be someplace. Well, I like that. Yeah. You were at the World Championship. And perhaps just as importantly, you are a member of the World Archery Executive Committee. Executive. Executive Board, yes. Board. Yep. And... Um, one of a elite group of people from the archery world that actually helps do things like recognize bare bow in target archery, which is pretty cool. We did a lot of growth in that category. We've seen more people signing up and participating in those events. And so a request was made to recognize that. And uh, yeah, the board put it forward. And then at the Congress, the, all the members passed it. So I guess it opens the door for uh, world records for bare bow now. Yes. Yeah. What do you think, Steve? Uh, I think it'll be great. It has taken off here in the U.S. Yeah. And, and it's been big elsewhere. Huge in Sweden. The thing about barebow archery that I like, whenever you watch an archery video on YouTube, say you're watching a World Cup final match, if it's the first thing that is asked in the comments, first thing in the comments is how far are they shooting? And the second thing is what is all that stuff on their bow? People disrespect the attachments, the sights, the stabilizers. Average people, yeah. Yeah, the the typical watcher of YouTube archery. Yeah. So uh, this will make it a little more, you know, I guess visually recognizable to the to the common man yeah. or woman. 
So Speaking that's cool. of, uh, and the division, I think it Vegas keeps growing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Bruce pretty, has made that point. Pretty famous archer shooting uh, this year at uh, Simon Fairweather. That's right. Came, Simon came with Fairweather. his bare bow. Yes, the Olympic champion of the year two thousand. He Simon doesn't like Fairweather. all that stuff attached to his bow. Yeah, he, he never yeah. did. I heard. Yeah, he, he always thought it was stupid. If you could have pulled all that stuff off and won the medal in Sydney, beat Vic Wonderly, then yeah, I suppose I mean, he would have tried. Guess you could. Sure. Nothing saying you have to have a sight or stabilizer. That would be pretty hardcore. Yeah. You're right, though. The rules do not say you have to have these things. Right. But I, I think Barebow would be cool. I like World Fields so much because of the fact that it is a big Barebow event, and they get their you know, day in the sun. And uh, it's fun to watch. Barebow in the, in the team round, the Barebow guy is your you know, the absolute pinnacle shooter if you need the best, if you want your best shooter to be in any of the three categories, you want them to be your bare bow guy because then you're more likely to win, right? So they get to go and do their their style one time every other year, right, at a big world archery recognized event. And now they're going to get a little bit more, and it's fun to watch, I think. All right. Well, I think that um, something that Rob Coffold has shown with his event, you know, the Lancaster, uh, what do they call it, the Lancaster Classic? Classic, yeah. yeah. That Lancaster Classic Barebow division seems to get a lot of people excited. Right. Right? Because uh, you don't know what's going to happen. The wheels could come off at any time. USA Archery did it this year as well in the indoor national finals. And I think, and they did it uh, mixed gender uh-huh. as Barebow. And uh, Fawn Gerard, who was on our world field team last time, I think she won or was third. She won her final match. I suppose if you're talking 18 meters, it's a level playing field from the standpoint of a whole bunch of factors. It's more of a mental game, right? I mean, the biggest factor, the the big secret about barebow for people who don't, you know, really understand how it's done is it is actually a form of sighted shooting. It's not the lack of a sight that keeps these people back. It's the lack of a clicker. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a serious mental game. It is. I think the lack of clicker would move me forward. Would help my game quite a bit. So, well, <laughs> as you know, Greg, uh, for those of you who don't know, did pick up a recurve bow and compete at Vegas this year, which oh, all yeah. respect. Uh, I, I like to say I participated. I don't <laughs> think I was at all competitive. So, Greg, unlike unlike uh, me and unlike Steve, picked up a recurve bow and donated his entry fee at Vegas. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> However you want to put it. Anyway, no, seriously, that was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, the the barebow thing is gonna is gonna be a big thing for the folks who are into that, you know. And I think that it's uh, it's great that World Archery is kind of opening the door to that. It doesn't mean though that every tournament's gonna have a barebow class. You're gonna have to check and see if if each individual tournament's gonna have one. And it also doesn't mean, Greg, that uh, it's gonna automatically be added to World Championships because it's already gotten too big, arguably, World Championships yes. compound and recurve. There's been some discussion of maybe splitting it up. Yeah, some thoughts about that. I mean, not necessarily at the at the board level or right, right. yet, but just yes, general just, discussion. Just the idea of would you know would splitting it up one make it a more manageable event for more people to host, but also you know it kind of gives us something else to really celebrate to be able to celebrate the compound world champion and then at a separate time celebrate promote you know get archery in the news with the recurve world championship. Yeah. I think there's some there's some I you know. Some benefits there. I think so, too. I mean, you know, everybody gets their day in the sun, but you kind of split it when you have two champions named at the same event, or really four champions named at the same mm-hmm. event, plus all the team champions and the 
all the other stuff going on. So that's an interesting concept. It'll be inter- the, the big thing is if you're an organizer of one of these things, it's a lot less daunting, you know, size wise. Yeah. If you do, if you do that. Yeah. I mean, you cost wise, you, you, you brought up this year's world championships. I mean, those organizers, and I'll take it just a second to shout out to them. The TOC was the name of their group. And, uh, they just did a, you know, independent group. They came up with this idea. They went and approached the Netherlands archery federation and said, Hey, we want to run this event. And they struck a deal and, did it and really did a phenomenal job. And they bit off a bigger thing than anybody ever has done with having the Congress followed by the Para World Championships followed right after and then overlap over that weekend for the Able Body World Championships and just did a great job. And that city there in uh, in the Netherlands, Den Bosch, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the the actual, let, let George do the actual pronunciation. Oh, no, I, not me. <laughs> uh, but they did a great job. A small town, but uh, really got behind archery and great place to be. And if, you, if you're in the Netherlands and you've done the Amsterdam and the other shiny, bright things, uh, swing through Den Bosch and see it. It's a great, qu- great little town. They're running a jazz fest, too, and they know how to go have a good time. All right. That sounds like a great recommendation. I, I understand that they've got some nice restaurants around there, too. Yeah. Huh? And a great dessert. Okay. Bosha Ball, I think it was called. Basically a cream-filled donut dipped in chocolate. Just, yeah, a crime. But it was good. Checks a lot of the boxes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for a compound chip anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Guy, guy loses some LBSs, and now he's got things to say. Look at this. Uh, there's a couple of things here that uh, took place during the Congress in particular. And, and let's talk about what Congress is and just for a moment, just to get folks who might not know, you know, World Archery has, up until now, a congress every two years that takes place generally around the World Championship, usually before, sometimes after in the past, but usually before the World Championship, they'll have a congress. And you've got committees, you've got elections for officials to World Archery, so new members of World Archery family are elected there, and then you've got uh, new rules that would be implemented the following year, generally. And all that stuff happens at every Congress. There's always a long list. I mean, a right. long list, right? I mean, you, you got a, I, I think there were 20 different PDFs. And the, the agenda uh, for this World Archery Congress is um, 26 items long. I was looking at it, you know, before the Congress right. started. And, of course, it's got financial reports and audits of stuff and member association, you know, politic matters. Did they pay their dues? Who are you kicking out of World Archery because they haven't, put an archer into competition in 10 years, that kind of stuff. But you've also got things like, okay, what drugs are on the list for the med- from the medical committee? What are the things they're going to vote on? What's the governance? What's happening with growing archery in different places? I mean, there's a ton of, of different uh, right. things on that agenda. Um, yeah, all kind, you, know, you, you mentioned Congress, usually around the world championship is actually before this Congress has been required to be with the world championships and one of the changes that was proposed and approved at this congress that's been talked about before was to allow congress to not only be solely held with the world championships but also could take place along the world cup final and that that helps from a number of different reasons one there's people that want to organize the world championships but don't really want the congress and really vice versa there are many cities in the world that would like to have the congress because it brings in a lot of people and it's easy to organize because you don't really have to know anything about archery. It's a, it's just a big meeting, but to tie that with the world, the uh, world cup final helps that event become a little bit better for an organizer. Otherwise, yeah, the world cup final itself is tough for an organizer. It's not that big of an event, but you add the Congress along with it. And that gives 
really the the uh, the World Archery Board the ability to say, okay, where should we have it? Who's got the best bid? Mm-hmm. Let's put it there. How yeah. many how many more bodies are coming into an event because of the Congress? We had well, you got 156 countries, right? But not everybody showed up at this Congress. I think I think we had about 80 countries and probably two people a country. So there's another 160. Yeah. You know, probably 180 people yeah. when you add staff and some other people in there. That really helps uh, with a hotel situation, sure. or a World Cup final. You yeah. think about among it, other things. You know, from a revenue standpoint, for an organizer, right? You got the hotels, you got the meals, yep. you got the uh, the venue, which is usually a very nice, you know, meeting hall kind of thing. Right. Um, you know, it, it is a big deal, and I would say that uh, splitting it or making it split a bull from World Championship now gives them a lot more flexibility in terms of where it could be, who could do it, that kind of thing. So um, moving on, um, there's been a number of other changes. And the big one, in my mind, that came out of this Congress was one that was proposed but was held off, was tabled at the last Congress two years ago in, I believe, Mexico City. And that was the end of the world indoor as we know it. And that is now a fait accompli. We are no longer going to have the world indoor every two years, as has been the case for, I guess, uh, something on the order of 40 times now, something like that. So what are your thoughts about that? You know, it's a, uh, you're you're right, it was brought up before in uh, Mexico City and again here. And, you know, as we talked about, and I think between Mexico City and this Congress even talked to more of the members about, it, it really comes down to, having enough participation and having enough interest of organizers to want to, to want to run that event. And in both cases, there was a decline, not, a, not a lot or any people wanting to organize the event and partially or, or largely because participation has been coming down. I think it was a hard decision for some of the member associations because they would tend to get funding for that and travel money for that. Um, and, you know, obviously they like that to be able to travel their teams and get that, that competition practice because in some countries if it's labeled a world championship they get coverage for it that they might not get for something called a world cup for example yes i think i think there's some of there are a lot of differences in individual countries but really with the growth and kind of success of the indoor world series competition it it started making the world indoor world championships an extra event or maybe a little redundant and between the really not having participation lower participation and lower um or nobody really wanting to organize it, we said, hey, maybe we should get rid of it and then figure out, you know, put our efforts behind that Indoor World Series. So in the past, you know, Steve and I have discussed this subject, and Steve is of the opinion, which I, I think I share, that really the World Indoor Championship is superseded by some other stuff because just take Neem, for example. Steve, you've made the point in the past. Neem is actually a tougher event, arguably. Not even arguably. If anyone tries to argue against me, they're crazy. I mean, Neem has everybody. Everybody can enter Neem. Three people per country can enter world championships. So you can either compete against literally anybody who pays 150 euro, or you can compete against anyone who's one country allowed them to go and two qualified for their country. So, yeah, I, I, uh, even looking back at the last world championships, it felt like they almost, the last two, they almost had to like find a place to do it, find a place in the schedule that would fit it because there's, 
probably five, six, seven, eight indoor tournaments that carry more weight for you know the top level shooters than than an indoor world championships that's would. not to mention the fact that the expense has gotten more and more it's it's at the point where really it costs almost as much to do a world indoor as it costs to do a world outdoor in some ways right as a host transportation the venue right i mean you still got to feed everybody you got to put mm-hmm. them in hotels i mean there's a ton of cost associated with one of those events you'd know better than anybody in this room well, running outdoors, I haven't run many of the indoor sites. No, so, but, but you know, I think you're right, and I think there are a lot of a lot of strong indoor events, and that's really I think you know, World Archery's look at it is how do we keep strengthening those world those indoor events, mm-hmm. keep a lot of them open, and let let people you know right. sign up. That's why they're trying to do more of those World Series legs around the world, so they can get a real strong regional participation yeah. in them. And then those people who do well regionally, they can make that kind of decision to go to a Nimes, to go to a Vegas, to go to some of the other big ones and, yeah. and I, just increase it, the participation and the competition. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many individual participants they had amongst all of the Indoor World Series last year, but you get about 1,100 from Nimes alone. And then let's say you get, let's say you get half that more. So you're, you're somewhere around 1,600, 1,700 participants in the Indoor World Series worldwide. Uh, and at indoor world championships, I think there was like 150 total people. Yeah. So it makes sense to do an open event. I wish there was an open event outdoors too. I wish they had an outdoor world series. Well, and who knows? I mean, that, isn't that kind of what the World Cup is supposed to be sort of kind of? I mean, you know. Well, it's not open today, but right. it's it gets talked about sometimes because really from an organizer, now purely not, not as a board member, but as an organizer, that's really the what makes or breaks the event has to do with the participation number. And, you know, if you had an event that said, okay, you know, the early registration is for countries, it's for your team. So you make sure you get a leg, but then at a, at the right point, it was, became an open event. So then you could Mm -hmm. fill all your targets that makes hosting a world cup, a completely different game purely from an organizer standpoint. Because you know, you're going to fill all the slots. It's it's, Uh, odds are, it's probably the main reason when salt Lake, we were going to organize the world cup, the third, year of the world cup here in salt lake city we ended up in august because of some scheduling things of, of this year which is the busiest year ever and everybody and their mother is going to the tokyo test event they're going to the test event they're going to other event qualifying events and the i looked at shot i yeah. looked at that and said i'm not going to get any participation what i said or thought about it, it's like i still got to throw the same party spend all the <laughs> same money and have a lot less people come pay an entry fee it made more sense yeah. to let Medellin do it in April. We had snow in April. We couldn't do it in Salt Lake. Medellin was helpful and supportive of Maryama from the Federation down there said, we'll step up and do it. They've done them before. Did a good job, yeah. job at it. We got some pretty good participation and helped, you know, get them some more experience running an event. And really what we're trying to do is next year, it's planned to go to Guatemala, is help develop other cities in the Americas yeah. that want to hold these World Cups. But... Long story short, eventually, if you were to figure out a way to open them up, it makes a big it makes a big difference mm-hmm. from an organizer standpoint. But if World Archery were to morph World Cup into the same kind of system that we have for the World uh, Indoor Series, every one of these events would be completely full, no doubt about that. Yeah, right. You'd have you'd save slots for the usual suspects, but then you'd fill those up with people from your own country, or you'd fill them up for local shooters would be able to participate. Oh yeah, I mean you that's could do the whole it in idea. waves. You go all right. Every country gets four. Register your four by this date, and then you got another month where every country can enter another 
eight. And then you had open slots. And then after if there's still open slots and it's open to anybody. What a great mm-hmm. idea, actually. You know, I mean, I got to tell you, I think that that would really energize participation, right? It would uh, make one of the, I mean, we've never seen an outdoor event like that. You know, where it's it would be so competitive. One of the close things to that is how U.S. Nationals kind of used to be when it was uh, more of an international event. We were one of the few countries that lets anybody shoot our nationals, you know, <laughs> historically. You want to shoot nationals in Japan, you got to be ranked in the top 124 in Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. You know, I, I got a dispensation to shoot at Japanese nationals a decade ago. You know, it took an act of the emperor, and I couldn't shoot in the, you know, elimination rounds once I'd shot the qualifying round. Not that I would have gone very far. But that's not the point. The point is that we let anybody shoot all the way to the medal round in our U.S. Nationals. Yeah. I mean, I well, actually. Well, the point I'm making is simply that that's similar kind of, to what this yeah. thing could be. That's all I mean. Yeah. It, it, I think it, we're talking like it could really fill up, have huge numbers. I think it could have huge numbers to the point it becomes problematic. And now you've got to run full line. You know, th- imagine the field at Shanghai being full of recurve men from one end to the other. You'd have to have four qualification lines. Your tournament length may double. That could be the issue. Well, or I think you, that's when you talk about splitting it up. Yeah. Or you figure out a way to really, if you cap all the divisions, it, again, it's a kind of an issue with the organizer. You, didn't re- you don't really know your field layout mm-hmm. until a couple weeks maybe before the event when they finally get all the registrations wow. in. And then World Archery goes through and says, oh, let's figure out how many the you know the event manager figure out how many guys we can get on the line or archers and it actually i would argue it it probably makes the event a little less efficient Mm -hmm. and if you knew all right this is how many we have on each of these lines and we're going to organize it and structure it the most effectively for running the event abc only and you know your cut line you could do it and you could say look we're going to this is the max number we can take right now since there's not a max we could end up with a bunch of recurvers and that changes the game or only a few in some other category right. and, and you kind of it changes how you have to organize it mm-hmm. whereas if you said each category is capped at this number and you could fill that in with local archers if you needed to that yeah. would that would uh, that would streamline the organization not to mention what happens when you have ABCD versus ABC right if you have ABC things fly but if you have ABCD man that sucks the air out of the schedule but it gives you more people well yeah um, but it makes the thing twice as long yeah. and the length I think the length is a continues to be a, a concern for well, for organizers and for, for countries. When we increased the team cut, when, when that was proposed and that passed, that was one of the things that was, that was passed in Mexico City, as I recall. It was told to the countries, you know, just remember, this will lengthen the event. Mm-hmm. And it effectively added a day. And now you're really stepping on both weekends. And, yeah. and it, it's, a bit, it's, it's a bit of an issue that they, we can figure out how to, how to shrink that back down, I think. As a competitor, you can still be an everyday guy and be competitive in the indoor world series because you fly in on Friday, compete Saturday, Sunday, or whatever, you know, fly in you, maximum. You're taking three days off of work. If you want to try to shoot a world cup, if you want to try to shoot Shanghai, you're going to miss six days of work minimum. Yeah. You know, yeah, well, the, event, the event itself is seven days. If right. you, if you stay into the finals and then you got to get there. So. Yeah. That's assuming you have weekends off. So you oh. just hit the, yeah. But yeah. when I, when I leave for Shanghai, I think I leave Saturday and man, we might've even started leaving on Friday just yeah. because of the change in it. So yeah, we'd leave Friday and then we come back Monday. It's a, 
the World Cup thing was a 40-day thing, the way I looked at it. 40, 40 days of 40 travel. 40 days of being, being out of here. Yeah. yeah. So 40 hotel days times 150 bucks, even if you're splitting that as a competitor, you know, with your roomie, you know, say $75 a night, you know, whatever the math is on that, somewhere in the neighborhood of like three grand in just hotel nights. You're looking at $20,000 investment by the time you are all yep. said and done, potentially, when you talk about flights, and you talk about yeah. hotel, and you talk about, you know. It's I mean, tough to do if you're, and a lot of the competitive shooters, like say the Australians, they aren't funded whatsoever. So they're doing it themselves. That's why you only see them virtually at Shanghai. You know, it's one event that's semi-close to them. So it's, uh, the duration of the event is problematic. All right. We've got a bunch of uh, questions from our listeners uh, on our Easton Facebook page because earlier today we mentioned that we were going to be talking to you, Greg. So uh, let's, let's pick a couple of those from our listeners on the Easton Target Archery Facebook page. Here's a good one, um, and this was from uh, Nikki Haverstock. She would like to know what are some predictions for the sport as a whole and Easton's role in the growth of archery. Maybe give you a bit of time to think about that if you want to. But did this podcast just become two and a half hours long? No, that's great. Yeah, I can I can, <laughs> I can go on this for. A while. Please do. No, I. Uh, Nikki, was it? I'm sorry, I didn't see the... Yeah, Nikki. Nikki. Um, very good. I, I wouldn't even say very good question. It's it's something that is, I think, top of mind for for a lot of people, a lot of organizations. And uh, I think archery has you know, quite a bit of challenges and a lot of opportunities ahead of it. And I really... I, I'm, I'm looking at answering your question right now with... Uh, spent some time and will be spending time later this year with my the board of my uh, Eastern Sports Development Foundation. One of the things we want to do is help promote archery here in the U.S. and really look for the best ways to do that. We've done some things that I'm, I would imagine some people are familiar with, some archery centers, events, uh, doing different things to try to help support the the participation in archery and really looking at what else what else can we do to help help grow that taking a hard look at what a lot of other organizations are doing there's a lot of different organizations out there doing different things to drive and support archery and you know i think it really comes down to how do we continue to help support the growth in target archery recreational archery because i believe that's kind of the gateway to whether it's field or 3D or hunting or whatever someone's going to do with archery, they always start shooting at a target. And as a percentage of our population that's a member of a target-related group compared to the rest of the world, we're, we're pretty low. I mean, we are largely driven here in the U.S. by bow hunting, and it's a great sport and it's a great activity, but it's got a lot of challenges, whether it's how many people are recreating outdoors. Habitat. Habitat deer populations, all kinds of pressures on that. So we want it, we need to, and we'll continue to support that, but also really look at the growth opportunity is if we can get enough, you know, more people really looking at archery as a health benefit from the French thing you mentioned at the beginning to yeah. a great activity for people to do, to talk about um, the mental side of the game that uh, they talk about coming out of some of the NASP kids that are shooting and more engaged in school and really looking at how do we, how do we take all those pieces? There's a lot of good independent pieces out there, and can can we, Easton, the Easton Sports Development Foundation, can we help figure out a way to put those pieces together to even 
drive that better and have a increase the participation in archery? I think it's a great answer. And, um, Nikki, thanks for that question. Um, we've got a question here from Rob Larkins. He wants to know, Steve Anderson, do you still think about me saving your life in Texas? Every day. Yeah. Uh, do you guys want to hear the story? Sure. So it was at an ASA event. It was the first target of the day. There was standing water on the course about ankle deep. And I was on this course. Obviously Rob was on my target and also Jacob Marlowe and Jacob, we shoot the target. Jacob starts walking. He's the first one to the target. And, uh, Jacob starts screaming obscenities and running back towards me. And I thought he had just forgot his pen to write on the scorecards. And I said, Oh, you can borrow my pen. And then I recognized that he was saying something about a cotton mouth, a snake. Right. So, um, he ran by me and Rob without breaking stride pulls an arrow out of his quiver, hits the snake on the head with the, with the arrow steps on its head and pulls its head off. It's one of the most poisonous snakes in America for anyone wondering. And it was a, you know, mouth open, ready to, to strike, trying to get a piece of Jacob Marlowe. So I know there's probably people out there who think we should have let the poor snake go, but that poor <laughs> snake needed to die. And, uh, Rob killed it super efficiently. I was really impressed by just how quickly he did. And, uh, he did, he did save me and I'll forever be grateful. All right. Then mm-hmm. next I'm question. A, next. <laughs> I just, do you, do you think about him every morning when you wake up? Do you pray um, about it at night? Kind of where does it fit into your day? You know, there's certain things I can and cannot say on this podcast to have it rated as it is currently. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's rated, it's rated clean on iTunes. Yeah. Ah, all right, we'll keep it clean. I don't see any questions there, George, from the from the Congress on our the good governance things. We that, there, that, that's yeah, not really it's not really igniting I, people. I huh? have a question. What else happened to Congress? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I'm trying to balance this with how do I put it. There's a, there's, a, there's a limit to how much of the inside baseball most people want to get. But since you were there, there might be some of the stuff that you want to talk about. Tell us about your number one thing that you're happy about from Congress. <laughs> we didn't have a chance to talk to Greg before the show, so I just hit him with that. We are unscripted again. Uh, let's see. No, um, He's considering all the many yeah. ways he could fire me right now. <laughs> or, or how I could get uh, fired in trouble. Um, <laughs> no, the... Uh, Number one, it was a, I would say, no, wouldn't say, it was a well-run Congress. It's excited that it's well-attended. I look back at the notes here. 85 countries show up. Yeah. You know, it's good that they're there. Um, I don't even know if that's who showed up or how many. Well, that's delegates and proxies. So right. a few less countries showed up because a few of them were carrying proxies. But it's good to get everybody there and, and to see how engaged and, and how much people care about archery around the world. I mean, these people run in. You know, the National Federation, all these countries really care about what's going on. You know, there's people who've been involved in the sport for the majority of their lives who are running businesses like you do, who are dedicating an inordinate amount of time like like Jim did. You know, Jim had 185 days at one point traveling on behalf of IOC and archery. And, uh, you know, you're you're you spent you just spent a month, you know, doing the same thing. our friend Kotaro Hata from Japan, right? He runs a big company in Osaka. He's he's constantly doing stuff for the Asian Federation and for archery right. and for world archery. There's there's so many people that dedicate so much of their time to this sport that that don't 
that do it out of the love of the sport, really. Oh yeah, you know, and it's it, great to see those people. It's also it's always um, touching for me. You know, I spend time talking to folks, and uh, was a guy from I'm going to say Bangladesh. I'll apologize if I've confused that, but a guy from Bangladesh who got into archery, got involved with the federation because of my dad. My dad went there. And Mr. Chapol. Yes. I think so. Met with him, and anyway, he just grabbed me during a congress and yeah. just said, "Hey, I want to, you know, how's your dad doing? And and let's, t- you know, make sure you tell him I said hi, and I, you know, I owe him so much, and thanks for, thanks for having him, uh, you know, thanks for all that he did over the years, and it's always a uh, inspiring because almost no matter where I go and I get, I get somebody who said my life is changed because of archery and because of your dad getting me or helping me get involved or whatever so yeah it's a yeah i'm one of those people it's a wonderful wonderful legacy to follow i'm absolutely one of those people so you know i mean there's i know lots of people who have that exact story yeah you know you've got um we're we're 33 minutes into the show and i know i know you've got a busy schedule but if you don't mind staying for a couple more minutes there's some other questions we've got from uh, got from some as long as your budget can afford it i'm I'm here so that's kind of up to you but um just Please Steve. don't send the invoice. Our budget is zero. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm double my fee and still zero, right? Hey, you know, Greg just gave me a, a a big raise for any archery announcing I do. I got my my fee has been doubled. Doubled to zero. Yeah. Doubled to zero. Yeah. Well, you know how it goes. All right. So Mike Anderson uh, has this question. I, I think that it's an interesting question, and it's one that I've talked. I'm going to assume that's my dad. Oh yeah. Look at that. What's the possibility of compound archery in the Olympic Games? I <laughs> we all looked at Steve. Let's well, let's do this first. The question this. as my dad wants to hear it, the possibility of me competing in compound archery is probably slim to none. Cuz by the time it gets in, I won't be able to hold that still, right? I'll be You'll done. be shooting barebow. Yeah, I'll be done. So, uh if it ever gets in, what would the earliest possibility be? Like 2032 at this Los point? Los Angeles 2028. 2028 20, maybe. 28. I I mean, I hope it does. I sure hope it does, but I'll be there probably as a coach for Whatever country will pay me the most. <laughs> wow. That's right. loyalty for you. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. Sure. No, no, I would, I would hope to be there in some coaching role if, I, if it ever hits the Olympics. Well, it's not a bad idea to have a world champion as a coach. It's a... Uh, Steve, Steve looks like he's thinking Uncharacteristically about that. quiet. <laughs> It's a it's a very it's a it's a very good question. I don't know. I, I couldn't give the, the odds of it. What's interesting is how how complicated it is. You know, you know, it's sometimes viewed as well. Doesn't World Archer somebody just tell the IOC, hey, we want to have compound archery in the games? Thank you very much. Um, no, it doesn't work that way. As a matter of fact, if the IOC, if they're doing anything, is they're really trying to manage the size of the summer games. Summer games today are capped at ten thousand eight hundred participants athletes and it used to be 10,000 and they they you know kicking and screaming made it another right but they're going the other way right and so right now it's 10,800 in Tokyo the organizers are allowed to add their a number of their own competitions they added sport climbing baseball softball surfing and surfing skateboard or is that one of the U.S. ones that's going to happen I don't think the I don't think LA is named their sports yet but that doesn't mean they're in the Olympic Games. They're in for that games. Right, mm-hmm. right. And that game's only and... What they used to call a demonstration sport. Right. And currently, those extra athletes are on top of the 10,800. My understanding is, I don't know which games, but in the future, 
those extra athletes will be counted mm. in the 10,800 and that 10,800 is coming down. They're really just, the games are getting too big. Countries, there's not enough cities, not countries, cities that can host them. So too expensive. Lo- so they're looking to manage games. So if you kind of think that overarching thing of they're trying to make it smaller for archery to come along and say, hey, can we send another 50, 30, however many athletes along? The easy answer is no, right? So you've really got to figure out, okay, how does that fit? What time of the games is it fitting? Is it use the same venue? Does it use a different venue? What what do we do? And then how do you get enough really support from probably a local organizer who would help add it, an LA or somebody else, along with the USOC and World Archery? And, and there's a kind of a lot of different facets to it. And it's something that is talked about a lot. I don't know that there's currently a you know a definitive event effort of we will get it in in LA but there's a lot of talk about what would we do and how do we do that and as I ask too is you know what's the I always also want to think about what's the ramifications of that what does a country do who's currently supporting a recurve team do they make a big change what Uh, are the unintended consequences yeah and I I encourage us to make sure we're thinking about that because there could be some serious right. unintended consequences. It, it may not pan out the best long term. It's hard to say. Well, Steve, I mean, you and I have had this conversation several times, and mm-hmm. and I think that our consensus was be careful what you wish for. Yes. Because stuff could happen that we can't even war game right now that could be negative in the long run for archery as we know it in the Olympics. You know, I mean, yeah. that's, that's always a possibility. And I'm not saying we shouldn't try. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to expand or get more space in the games or or a firmer foothold, but whatever it is, it's got to be smart enough to make the IOC go, this is a good idea and we like it because we're, we're winning, you know, we're getting something out of it. Mm-hmm. That's positive. Yeah. And that, and that's probably the other aspect of if from an IOC standpoint, and again, I don't know, I don't speak on any of their behalfs, but I would imagine they're looking at, or if they're considering a new sport is okay. Well, I think this is obvious. How televisable is it? How right. interesting? How many eyeballs is how, it going how, to get? How many people, how exciting is it? And for World Archery, we would need to make sure we're putting forth not only an event that's competed around the world and has world championships and all that sort of thing, but that is, you know, excitable. And you think about Nimes. I mean, that's, or, you know, that kind of indoor high drama event is something I think is more might be more appealing with than, a presentation and yeah. with some drama and mm-hmm. well, you know, there is that, um, it's it, the big criticism of course of, of archery in general is the average person out there only sees it every four years during the Olympic games. And, um, you know, we've, we've come up with the most compelling concept we can so far, yeah. you know, building on Jim Easton's work to try to create a head-to-head competition with drama and a story about athletes and you can see what's happening at the target. It's not a whole row of guys dressed up like bakers shooting north, you know? <laughs> and and I think that, you know, we have come a long way. We need to sit back for a moment and go, you know what? If you consider where we were in 1984, which was your first Olympic Games that you participated mm-hmm. in as a, as a volunteer right. and, a, and a torch runner... And you look at where we were in 1992 in Barcelona with head-to-head. And then you look at, in and, and 88 even, you know, with uh, the Grand Fita, which Jay Bars won. Mm-hmm. Um, we have come a long way, you know. And we have been one of those sports that has been willing to change and, and proven that we're willing to change because the Olympics has been so important to yeah. so many countries in, in our movement. That's helped archery, I think, for, for many years as we were, like you said, willing... 
I don't know if everybody was willing to change, but we were willing to push some changes through and keep progressing the sport. And I think it's got us ahead. It's got archery into the uh, you know, higher category from the IOC's perspective, which has been great. The challenge now is there are a lot of sports are have been over the years up in their own game too to say okay mm-hmm. yeah we we see this as now I mean really it's come down to it's a competition to stay in the games yeah there's I, no there's no guarantee any sport let alone archery stays in the Olympic games now you're not voted on every time the IOC meets but there's always sort of that chance and so I think every sport's really realizing that is hey we need to not only keep our sport interesting. We need to keep, and, and it's sort of this boring thing I mentioned, the con- or one, you know, the good governance thing. I mean, it's kind of, okay, yawn, or how interesting is that? That's an important aspect. You look at some sports that are in some big trouble right now because of how they've been running their sport, and I think the IOC is getting a bit tired of it. Say, look, we're, you know, we're going to make it harder on you until you clean up your governance and how you're running your sport. Needless to say, you need to stay you know, interesting and, and relevant in today's market because we're, we're a televised sport is what we sell, is the images you see on the TV when you watch the Olympic Games. Archery's done a great job of that. We need to keep doing it. The other sports, if you look at them as competitions for spaces in the Olympic Games, are up in their games. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's talk about that a little more on the governance issue. I mean, there have been a number of things that have been changed in terms of how the, the machinery works in world archery. Um, disclosure of interests, uh, term limits, mm-hmm. Uh, a few other items that uh, that have come to pass. And the reason is because we are not FIFA, right? I mean, I'm sorry to throw soccer under the bus, but we're not. And we don't, we don't ever want to have that kind of a problem in, in archery. And I think that by getting ahead of the curve here, uh, archery is showing that it is a, an exemplar of yes. good governance. Yeah, and what the, the um, I don't know the name of the group, and I believe the IOC commissioned it, but a group did a, a governance survey of all the international federations and rank them on a this how good their governance was and archery was in the middle a little bit on the low side and our objective was how do we get how do we get you know well above halfway how do we move ourselves up and you know looked at what things are considered some of that good governance things the term limits as you mentioned the clear disclosures of of conflicts of interest and that sort of thing all of those help move us forward and are just good governance thing for an organization to keep you progressive and up to date on the on the times and what's going on in the you know in the sport and in the world and so we you know we wanted to make some of those changes and the uh, members uh, saw the light with us uh, fortunately and approved it and so we're moving forward with putting in those changes over the next couple of congresses and getting everything in line and, you know let's let's be honest i think some of the changes of this nature can be painful because you have people who've been in archery in consecutive roles in in world archery in the same role for a long time and and there's people that i'm I'm looking at the list right now of the uh, executive board members, and I recognize every single one of these people, and and every one of these people has given heart and soul into the sport for 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 decades, arguably, and now you're telling me that so and so is going to have to step down for at least two years after say 2023 or whatever, Mm -hmm. and that's you know hopefully they'll get a different role, right? They'll get into a committee or some other role and stay in the sport. So that's got to be a little bit painful on some level for some folks, but I think you can understand. It can be good, you know, too. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, it's a trade-off there. It's, it can be good, and that's, I think, the real issue is you look at, you got to try to find that balance between we like having people who are dedicated and willing to invest because it takes you time to get up to speed and know what's going on and then figuring out how you 
participate. But then at the same time, if you're there, you know, too long, you, you're not bringing new ideas. Mm -hmm. And even the whole idea with term limits, even changed my thinking a little bit. You know, if you get a position and you can just keep running, you, you don't, you don't have a finish line. If you know, look, I can only be here for four terms. I'm going to try to get some stuff done. I want to, whatever I'm going to yeah. try to get done, I need to try to get it done while I, while I'm in, while I'm in the role and not just, uh, you know, kind of go, go, you know, punch the ticket. So I think that'll help too. And it's right. It's a, it's a change and you, you give up something, but you also hope you gain something by having new, new and different thoughts and people in there. You know, I'll point out another aspect of this and that is that I think we have been one of the sports that has the fewest ethics slash athlete issues right? I mean, if you look at some of the doping issues in some other sports or some of the ethical problems that some of the other sports have had, you know, like gymnastics and I mean, my God, some of that stuff has been just horrendous to read about. We've been very, very fortunate in our sport in that we have not had, you know, major doping instances or issues of that nature. And I think that a lot of effort has gone into, um, reinforcing that and keeping that strong right that that sort of ethic yeah and world archery has worked over the years with the member associations to say okay let's take a look at your congress your your set of rules your bylaws how are you organized and really help them to make sure that they've got a a good set of bylaws that runs a good organization and have uh, you know good procedures in place so to help help manage those other risks they have, whether it's doping or other, other issues. Yeah. All right. Just getting back on the subject of the uh, world championships. You just got back from uh, three weeks at the paras and the regular world championships and then the, the Congress and you then went to the uh, Turkish uh, world cup. World cup. Yeah. Turkey, yeah. So uh, the para had a big impact. I think, um, you know, this was the, just as big of an event as the world championships from the standpoint of the effort and the participation level was very high. Yeah. It's harder, way yeah. harder. Yeah. 300 and 300 and some 300 athletes. And what I heard from the organizer, 200 of them in chairs. Yeah. Think of the and you think about moving people in the chairs, the hotel rooms, Logistics, that sort of thing. Yeah. They, they had, yeah. they had some real challenges. You might know even more know than I did see, but you know, challenges in that smaller town, finding enough hotel rooms. One of the hotels, they actually put an out, some out, some, temporary facilities restrooms and showers so the athletes had enough convenient way to get there yeah it's not as convenient as being in your hotel room but at least they had them and just because right. they just ran out of hotel rooms that had enough capacity for them so um you know hats off to them for that organization side of it they also ended up putting they were telling me they put some targets right there at the hotels which the guys from the u.s team were telling me you know that was this great because we could do something tweak a bow do something and just go downstairs and shoot rather than having to go all the way to the venue and get transport yeah. and all that. So, um, yeah, those uh, organizing the, the pairs, it hats off to those guys who pulled that off. It's well, a pain in the butt for me to get through an airport with my bow case and bag. So, you know, those guys, I saw them here before they left for one of the tournaments, and they had to leave like five hours early for their flight, you know, and their hotel is all of four minutes from the airport. But it's a matter of getting everything in and then they have you know maybe they have 16 athletes they only have like three or four coaches helping them move stuff in and out and that's kind of every country so it's uh it's tough and then we did a survey uh usa archery did to the paras about what would make tournaments easier for them and and you know one of the things that came back that a lot of us probably never think about is 
having bathrooms near the shooting line. So like at nationals, the bathrooms were something like 200 yards away. And there was only a couple of them that were wheelchair accessible. So they can't go between an end. Like I could just, you know, get up and go to the bathroom, run to the bathroom, get back before the end of the, you know, the next, the shooting end and all was good. I didn't have to miss any scoring or any of that, but for the paras, that doesn't work. So they, they need more, you know, breaks, stoppages within the tournament, things like that. It's tough for them to. Yeah, some of these folks tournament. with the injuries they have, they can't regulate their body temperature the way that uh, disab- that that able-bodied people can, and as a result, they're very sensitive to heat, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So, I remember a few years ago they had a, a para worlds in Bangkok, mm-hmm. which is always pretty warm, and uh, you know they're doing that on a turf field. Yeah, it's and, really hot there. Yeah, I mean those props to those people for putting themselves out there and, and getting it done because that was that was huge. Eric Bennett, the American, uh, did very well at this uh, at this event. Uh, a new world champion for the recurve women, and you know, there's so many categories in this that I'm right. I'm I'm going to give somebody short shrift if I, but but my standout thing was was watching Eric Bennett do it again because mm. it's his second world championship. Pretty pretty outstanding. Yes, yeah, it's a, it, it's imp- I mean, all of these athletes are impressive. Uh, you know how they're shooting with the the disabilities they have and just fun to watch them um I actually had my family my kids over there and they they had met a couple of the athletes down here at a training camp we were they were studying some diversity and disabilities and just kind of differences in people and so my wife asked you know can we come down and see some of the archers and yeah, po- ha- point of pride the uh the american paralympic team often trains here at the eastern center in right. salt lake city and so we they happen to have a training camp going on brought them down for that and they were you know fantastic good to meet the kids matt was there matt stutzman so he had spent a few, few minutes but so we got over there and they're like, oh, when are we going to see Matt? And how's Matt doing? And they were excited to see him when they're competing and go over in the stands and sit with them when they were cheering everybody else on. So it was just a, a great bunch of people. And uh, like you said, Steve, it's hard hard for you you to get around with all your gear and how much more they have to go through mm-hmm. and just, you know, hats off to all of them. Yeah. And, you know, I'll say this. I think I, I have yet to meet a Paralympian competitor with a bad attitude at one of these events. They all seem to be generally, you know, just – Let's just say that they're more pleasant to deal with than some of the regular folk <laughs> at, the, uh, at the regular event mm-hmm. at times. At times. Um, speaking of the regular event, uh, highlight for me, obviously, and I think for a lot of folks, was watching Brady Ellison take his first senior world championship. Outdoor. Outdoors. Yeah. Yes, because he's done it indoors. Right. And he's done it as a junior compounder. Um, field. Mm-hmm. I'm this still getting the over the stress. Did he have to take it all the way to a shoot off? Yeah, I, mean, I texted him about that. Come on, that was wow. That was that was a great that was a great match. Yeah, yeah and was, a great arrow. Yes, you, you know we're watching here, and it's we're not watching because it gets blacked out, right? Because it has to go on the Olympic Channel like the following day. Some of us have a VPN. VPN. Yeah, so I didn't VPN. I I didn't. I don't even know how to do that. <laughs> um, so I'm watching someone update the spreadsheet on Ionseo, and I'm pretty certain that person was more interested in the match than the updates because it would come through and it'd be like two arrows were scored for, you know, the competitor, and then then finally they'd get Brady's arrows up there, and it was just really, uh, it kind of drew it out a little longer than I would have <laughs> liked. So I said, if you could just go six zero next time, that'd be great. And he said, I know, but you know, then we talked about it. I said, this will, this is how you should want it. It's sweeter this way, yeah. right? He took a one-arrow shoot-off to win. If you just smash the guy, like, drop, especially if he didn't shoot well. Say Brady goes out and shoots 328s, which is great, but to Brady's standard, not great. 
he shoots three twenty eights, and the other guy just falls apart and shoots 25, 25, 25. Yeah. And Brady's going to be like, yeah, I won, but whatever. Mm-hmm. So, But he spidered that last shot. He had to own it, yeah. That last shot. And, I mean, the athlete, um, which country was it? Was it? Yeah, Muhammad from Malaysia. Yeah, his competitor from Malaysia uh, ranked. I looked it up when I was there, but not not, ranked, not that high. Not that high. And I think that was a, a little bit of a story throughout the throughout the competition. Quite a few athletes, Excellent quite a few point. teams, um, really yeah. really came with a with a excelled game from what maybe they normally shoot. In our last podcast, which was back in April, I was telling Steve about what a great job that Martin Frederick, the coach who used to be from Germany had done with the team from Bangladesh at the Asia Cup in Bangkok. And I was predicting that we'd see good things from them this year. And boom, they got their Olympic slot for the first time ever. Pretty impressive. Malaysia, similarly. Uh, So Karul Mohammed is a guy that I've seen many times shooting in the Asian circuits. And boom, you know, he brung it. Mm-hmm. But Brady brung it to him on that. <laughs> you got to admit, I mean, that was, that was a decisive victory there. Um, meanwhile, though, as you pointed out, Greg, we're seeing a lot of other teams, maybe some of them not the usual suspects, that, that nailed their Olympic slots right off the bat and got it the, quote, easy way mm-hmm. because it's only going to be really difficult from here. Yeah. And qualifying the team at that at this event is everybody's objective. And, yeah, and just kind of making it, not to make it too ethnocentric here, but, you know, this is the first time ever, ever in the modern Olympic era that the United States has failed to qualify an Olympic team in, you know, a full team uh, at the Worlds. In other words, you know, based upon the way that the, we don't, we have one guy right now. That's right. one yeah. men's slot. Spot, it's yeah. not even Brady. It's, it's one men's slot. And that's it. Whereas normally in the past, we've always managed to qualify a team of men at least. Um, and this is the first time we have not qualified a team uh, since the team round started back in 88. Yeah. And as, as you said, it's going to make it a lot harder. You sure. You've got to win a lot more, a lot, not a lot, but you got to win a few more events now to qualify the other two or three in the women's Well, you case. can only qualify one or all three. So the way this is going to end up, we can either qualify a full team in Berlin or we can only qualify one more person from Berlin, what I understand. 2020. Right. Yeah. Right. Because Berlin 2019 is like next week. Right. I meant <laughs> next, next year. Yeah. Whereas the Europeans have an advantage because they're actually able to qualify people this week while they they're did. still yeah, fresh they, coming they off just of did. Italy qualified off yep. the mixed team. Yep. And, and so our chances are... Well, that just are, brings you one man and one woman. Correct. Right? Yep. Yeah. Correct. Which I think the U.S. could do also, but I don't know what that... We have a chance to qualify one woman for the mixed team. We have qualified, we can qualify one woman as an individual. We could qualify a team of women and we still have a chance to qualify a team of men. That's all we we have. Qualify a a woman as an individual that would give us a mixed team. We'd be in the mixed team round. Yes. If you have one and one, you're in the mixed team. Yeah. There's no like separate. Yeah. There's no cuts. So we'd be in it, but you know, this is not a good place to be. You're kind of like painting yourself into a corner here and it's not yeah. comfortable. And you know, everybody's working hard. Don't get me wrong. I'm not being critical here, but man, things have gotten tough. And you know why? I think you'd attest to this. The rest of the world's really caught up. They've really pushed it harder. They got caught. I mean, the U S team got caught against Kazakhstan who the last couple of years as a team, they beat Korea. They're world beaters. They beat Korea. They yeah, they you cannot take Kazakhstan lightly. They I've said that day. before. They're day ruiners. <laughs> well, the the point is they're very capable yeah. and talented and they've got good coaching, you know, and, and, you know, it's all that former Soviet stuff. I mean, they, they still have a legacy 
and they still have the system and they still have the discipline. And, you know, I think you've got a situation where you can't take anybody lightly these days. Nobody. Yeah, it's uh, it'll be interesting to watch it next year at the, the the final qualification of teams is really fun to watch, actually, because. I mean, it's fun as a spectator because there is everything on the line for a lot of these You know, people. it's actually more interesting to watch than some of the actual finals in some of yeah. these events because there's so much more at yeah. stake. The emotion just is huge. Yeah. And it'll Ogden, be... Right, know, for Ogden in yeah. 20... Correct well, me if I'm wrong, but it'll be three teams in both men and women, or will it be four in the women? I don't remember. Uh, it depends on okay. How did because Japan of, do as a it's, team? It's three because Japan did not do did not. They lost in both men and correct. women. Correct. Okay, so it'll be three teams. So the bronze medal match, they go to the final team qualifier and they shoot his teams down to you know the semifinals. There will be no relief. The semifinals. Once someone wins that, they go crazy, and then they they still shoot the gold medal match like it matters. The winners of the semifinals will be able to go crazy this yeah, time. Don't the, even watch them once they shoot the their winning next impaired match. people to go to the bronze medal match. Watch that's going to that be one. ugly. Oh my God. Yeah, Cause the bronze medal matches were, that's the last win. one in. Yep. That's the one to watch. Oh boy. Tears will flow. <laughs> yes. That'll be Berlin, right? Yes. Yep. Next year. Yeah. Next year. So a lot at stake and, um, Hey, that's what this is all about. That's what sport is about, right? It's it's the process. Maybe we should put together a travel package for Berlin. Who wants who archers who archers out there want to go? I mean, you got to pay, but put together a travel package. Come watch it all. Come watch some Berlin action. You know that could be managed by the Eastern Management Group. I think that's right. <laughs> Becoming a travel agency. Well, it worked for you, Baroth. <laughs> all right. So as we uh, as we get ready to wrap this up, first off, thank you for joining us uh, for the podcast, Greg. It's. Uh, something that's long overdue and and i think uh, you know we could probably go for another hour easily but uh you know we we are trying to keep that would bore people even more than they might already be bored oh, but i'm very happy to be here george i hear you and steve any closing thoughts before we wrap up for the day um my new thought is that depending on what level of coach you are that so we were talking about how much coaches charge per hour, right? And I said, we your, were. your your level, if you're level one, you get $25 per hour. Level two, 50. Level, so it's $25 per level. No, you need to, you need to, you need to. That's my thing. You need to set this up a little better because the listeners to this podcast didn't hear our conversation earlier today. We were, I don't even remember what the conversation was. I was discussing was. how a coach that you and I know charges a hundred bucks an hour. And I said, that's what I would charge. Right. And I said, it's justified because you're a world champion. He's a level four coach. Correct. But it's a hundred bucks an hour in a sport. That's not used to a hundred bucks an hour. Swimming coaches charge that soccer coaches may charge that, but we're not used to it in archery. We're, we're as archers as compound archers, especially we're willing to spend thousands of dollars a year on trying different releases that aren't going to fix the same problem. We'll always have until we get a good coach who fixes the problem for a hundred dollars an hour. Drop the mic. Walk away. <laughs> <laughs>